Okay, I don't have a lot of rules for this podcast. In fact, there's pretty much just one. I say, Ginger, Tiffany, our producer, you're just not allowed to book anybody that's hunkier than me. Guess who broke the rule this week, Ginger? <laughs> one rule. We had one rule on this show. You had one job, producer Tiffany. You actually, I saw him pop up a couple of seconds ago, and I'm just going to, I'm a married lady and probably old enough to be his mom. He's fine. <laughs> so, so before, if you're listening to this, you're just going to have to trust Ginger. Uh, so we have... An Olympian. He is going to the Olympics, uh, but not like your normal. Okay, so by the way, this is Florida's fourth estate. I'm Matt Austin. That's Ginger Gadsden. Welcome to the show. We often get a diverted. So <laughs> we are excited. So normally, an Olympian is someone who has trained from like birth to do, you know, you see these gymnasts, they're like, you know, 12 years old, they're already doing all this crazy stuff. This guy had sort of a roundabout, crazy way of making it to the Olympics. His name is Josh Williamson, and we are excited to have him on the podcast. He's a Central Florida guy, played all sorts of sports, and he found his home on the bobsled. Welcome to the show, Josh. Thanks for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, I'm looking forward to this, and I always, uh, growing up in Central Florida, I watch you all the time, so it's pretty cool to uh, get to have a conversation with you all. My man. Oh, oh that's so nice. that is beautiful. That was unrehearsed. We didn't even talk about that. <laughs> I didn't even make him say that. Look at that. Hey, that is so fantastic. Josh, I, I just want to say it's always, you know, an honor to talk to. I, I, I love athletes because it takes a certain kind of person to achieve that kind of level. But you are Olympic status. How does, when you realize that you were like, okay, I'm on this team. What did you think? I don't know. It hasn't really set in yet, to be honest. Uh, it's been a bit of a surreal experience. We found out here a couple days ago. Uh, I've been training the last four years. I came in, in 2017 as they were picking the Olympic team for South Korea. Uh, I got to be a part of that process. I wasn't really in the running for anything. I was brand new, so it wasn't like I was really going to make that team. But I got to really watch the process and see some athletes go through it. And Now, four years later, to think I'm in this position sitting in a, in a holding in California. So right now you are in this California facility where they like house all of our super athletes. Is tell us about the the place you're in right now. Yeah, no, I'm a uh, I'm in Chula Vista, California right now. Uh, this is the Olympic Training Center here on the West Coast. I usually live out in Lake Placid, New York, at the Olympic Training Center, and this is just something. There's one of my teammates, Charlie. Is there someone <laughs> swimming behind you? Right now? Yeah. Chuck, what's happening but uh, we our whole team's here for a holding camp we're actually just enjoying the warm weather here i got all the sun on my face you know but uh we've been in the cold weather in europe pretty much for the last 10 weeks on the road uh, qualifying for the olympics and now we're in a holding camp here we'll be flying out of los angeles with the rest of the olympic team uh on the 27th to china so right now we're just kind of in a quarantine training here at this facility and getting the sun while we can before we go back to the cold weather That is uh, that is very interesting. Oh, that's uh, this... nice. That's going to be great. Okay, so tell me how it is. I was going to ask how someone who played lacrosse ended up on the bobsled. Well, I really I played football and lacrosse pretty much growing up my entire life. Uh, I played football for the most part, and then got into lacrosse in middle school. Ended up falling in love with it, and then I uh, ended up stopping to stop playing football in high school to continue playing lacrosse. 
I ended up going to college to do that. A big goal of mine was to play Division I lacrosse. I ended up going to Mercer University, a small school in South Georgia, right near the kind of Florida border. And went there for a year, had a lot of injuries, and decided just to kind of hang it up. I was kind of sick of being hurt. I kind of achieved that goal, but it wasn't exactly everything I think I wanted. So I decided to go to Florida State and be a student. I just transferred in, thought I was going to have a normal college experience, go be with my friends, you know, good in-state tuition, and just kind of enjoy that part of my life. And it took me about a semester to realize I needed to find something to compete in. I needed to find another sport to do. And I kept training throughout that time. I just really always enjoyed weightlifting and sprinting, and things that kind of kept me ready for bobsled without really training for anything. And when I kind of started looking into maybe some sports that might be an option for me, I followed a couple of guys who were on the bobsled team back in uh, 2017, 2016, 17. And I just liked a lot of their Instagram videos. They did a lot of heavy weightlifting. They were big guys, you know, strong, fast, and just kind of athletes I wanted to be like. And when I looked a little more into what made them good at bobsled and what it would take to try to get on that team, I wasn't really at those numbers yet, but I thought, you know, maybe – with a little training, I thought I could maybe hit some of those benchmarks and put a couple months of training in and started looking up some combines and where I could maybe get into the sport. And, and it kind of went from there. I, I ended up getting in touch with the coaching staff and the ball kept rolling. And then next thing I knew, I was on the ice. <laughs> so, so Josh, you said you were kind of preparing for this without even know you were preparing for it. You are the brake man on the bobsled. What does that mean? I know that like each bobsled team has like the meaty strong guy they've got you know like there are different players in this so so what are you and and what is it about your athletic background that helped make you such a good brake man it's it's funny i say this a lot i i was pretty much training for the sport my whole life without really knowing it i just was doing by doing the things i enjoyed doing which for me always was you know, short sprints jumping and weightlifting those are all things that i naturally liked i i know not a lot of people like distance running i was particularly bad at it and it made it just more insult to injury when I'd be like first in the 40-yard sprint, but dead last in the mile. So I hated it even more. <laughs> in the field sport, you get a lot of conditioning. So I always trained the things I like. It didn't always suit me well for the sports I was in. It did in some instances, but not all the time. And I realized with this sport that I can pretty much train every day and do things that I love pretty much all day. And that's something that really set me up for this. In my position in the bobsled, I, I right now, we don't exactly know who's going to be ra racing yet in the two and four man. But I usually do two and four man. I push from the left side in the four man, which is the guy who ends up sitting right behind the pilot. And the best way to look at it is the brakeman on the back of the, the four man sled, for example. He's going to be on the ice the longest. So you're generally going to have the smaller, very fast guy because he, you know, you're going 40 meters downhill with a 400 pound sled in front of you. You know, that thing can get moving away from you and you got to be pretty extremely fast for the back of that or my position those positions on the side you got to be a little more of a mix of strength and speed because you're a bit of a, a disadvantaged position to the weight on the sled so getting it moving is a little harder when you're behind a lot of weight for example you can push it a lot better than if you're on the side of it you know and that's something that it requires a little more strength and the biggest thing that for our sport is you're trying to be a perfect mix of, of size and speed because our sport's a downhill sport and if you don't have the weight on your body, we have to add weight to the sled. And if we add weight to the sled, that makes our pushing potentially slower because ultimately there's a maximum weight limit that we weigh at the bottom of the track. And you want to have as much, you want to be as close to that as you possibly can, or you're at a disadvantage in the race. And the ideal is you have a, a minimum weight, empty sled to push so you can push fast. 
and then you all once you all get in, you're heavy enough to get you as close to that maximum weight limit as you can. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And you have to kind of, you know, be a lot, you got to be on top of it, right? So you're going like 80 when you're at top speed. Is that right? Have the fastest track in the world, which is in Whistler, Canada, like just north of Vancouver, or sorry, just east of Vancouver, your maximum speed in the four-man, you're hitting like 95 miles an hour. And that's, that's like fastest track Ooh. in the world. Generally, Jeez. you're anywhere from that 80 to 95 area, kind of. And every track's a little different. You know, turns are different. Speeds are a little different. The feeling of the track's different. So that kind of varies. But uh, either way, you're, you're, you're definitely cooking <laughs> when you get to the bottom of the track yeah. with all that weight in those four-man. But what does that feel like, Josh, when you're flying that? Are you even aware that you're going that fast? Or are you just in that moment in the adrenaline? In, in my position at the brakes, your uh, your head's down because our, our whole point is trying to be as aerodynamic as we can once we're in the slug. The pilot will be driving, and the rest of us are we, – we go into the wind tunnel over the summer, and we work with a lot of positioning of not only the sled but ourselves and how we can get the best kind of uh, aerodynamics going around the top of it to, to hopefully increase our speed. So I don't really get to – to see how fast we're going, but you can definitely feel it uh, when you're, you know, a big thing that we get is a lot of uh, G-forces. We, we can pull up the five Gs in certain parts of the track. And that's because when you're, when you're, the way we're able to be glued to a wall, you know, going that fast, you know, if you look at a lot of the turns in a bobsled track, they get to the point where it's just a, it's just flat and we're kind of glued four or five feet up. And part of that is because that centrifugal force is pulling us into the, the turn and holding us to the to the turn like it would be the ground. So when I'm in a, a cannonball with my head down, a lot of that force kind of comes down through your neck and kind of pushes you and crunches you down. And that's how you can kind of tell you're like, wow, we are really hauling because the pressure gets really, really heavy towards the bottom of the track. That's fascinating. I've, I've always wondered, is the guy, the pilot, the one who's steering this thing? I mean, is he actually steering? Is it just taking it where it's going? Or because I mean, there's not like wheels on it. There's, what what is the steering apparatus inside the bobsled that makes it so the pilot can tell it where to go? Is he having a big impact? Yes, absolutely. It's always funny. I saw a tweet about this the other day. It's kind of funny. There, some someone was talking about the idea of like, hey, for a lot of Olympic sport, we should put uh, just somebody who's never done the sport in the event. And just to see, you know, see what would happen to give people an idea of what they're watching, you know, because a lot of times it's sports that no, nobody's familiar with. Or yeah. no, one's had any, no one has any experience taking a bobsled trip, you know. Uh, our, our pilots oh, are using essentially two D-rings, two D-rings that they pull on, I guess, if their hands are like this, right to go right, left to go left, because these, these ropes attach to an axle that move the front runners. It just, the axle moves, so the runners move when, when you want to turn. And... It's, it's definitely a big impact, you know, for, for a great way to think of it is if a pilot gets in and sometimes their, their D-rings or their steering is broken or taken from them, it's almost impossible to make it down the track without rolling over, without crashing. So that, that's, if that tells you a little bit about they are having a pretty big impact, not only are we looking for speed, but number one, you want to get down as safe as you can. You know, sometimes there's a fine line between going fast and being safe, but you kind of straddle that as you get more, as you get further from learning to drive in closer to wanting to go fast, you know, that, that's something that you think you start towing that line a little more, but it's definitely a, a very big impact. What most people are surprised about is our sport. When you think of those blades, they aren't sharp like a skate. They're, they're almost a finger width. They're very fat. And so the idea of that is the thinner the runner that you run, 
the more ice you're going to cut. So you might have more control, but you might not be as fast. So we run mm. as close to maximum of a radius, which can be almost to a thumb, a thumb, sorry, I don't know if I'm in the camera, <laughs> a thumb's radius almost. And with that, it still digs into the ice because you have, you know, 800, to, you know, you have 600 kilos in the sled, but of people, but at the same time, you're, uh, you're trying to cut as little ice as you can. And it's again, that fine line of, I want to get down safely, but what are ways I can maximize speed? And sometimes that's just letting the sled run. And sometimes the run can get a little rough, but it might be fast. <laughs> yeah. Did you know the first time you were in a bobsled, do you, one, do you remember that time? And then after that first ride, did you know right away that I'm going to be back? I really, it's one of those things where the best way I've heard it described is it's like being in a, in a trash can and just kind of tossed off a ski slope, you know, it's a little <laughs> jangly and you're kind of hitting walls and you're like, everything's rattling. If you're ever, if you're ever at a bobsled race, when you hear a sled coming down the track, it's like a train. And then when it gets close to you, it gets almost deafening. And that's just like a rattling of, of on and off the ice of pressures. And it's something that it's, it's very confusing your first time in, especially you don't see where you're going, you know, and you have no idea what to expect and you get to the bottom. And it's very overwhelming, but I definitely could understand the draw to it. It's one of those things where the more you do it, the less you worry about holding on tight and hoping you don't crash. And then you start feeling the track. And as a brakeman, I start memorizing, okay, turn one feels like this. Turn one should feel like this. Turn two should feel like this. And then you know, are we having a good run? Are we not? And as you're going mm -hmm. down the track, you're a little less worried about, you know, holding on when you become more comfortable and the more trips you take. So I think after my first trip, that was back in 2017 with Nick Cunningham, uh, a multiple time Olympian for our team, uh, now a coach. He uh, took me down my first run and it was very overwhelming, but it was something that I definitely was excited for. And there's a lot of aspects about this sport that I love. And I think that that, you know, that was something that I kind of immediately picked up on and got a feeling from the group of guys who were in the sport that I thought I'd fit in well and that this was something I'd want to continue doing. I will say, I don't know if you have the best sales pitch I've ever heard for a sport. That's kind of like somebody stuffing you in a trash can and then throwing you down a ski slope. That sounds pretty horrifying. <laughs> it's just one of those things. It's always, it's funny. It, it, our sport, especially a good run, you're watching it. It looks very smooth and flowing and it almost looks like, you know, like the sled's just, that's just what it does. But if you ever see like a new pilot take a trip down and if, again, if you're ever in a sled, it, it's very very rattling, very loud, very rough. You're hitting a wall. So if I'm, you know, folded over, touching my toes in the back of the sled, you hit a wall, then you kind of slam into the side of the sled. And so that's just one of those things that you, you feel it. And again, it's almost as a brakeman, you get those trips as you move forward in your career. You know, when you start out, I'm not going to be with the best pilot on our team. I'm going to be with the, the new guy who has never taken a trip, you know, and then your first runs are a little rough. And then you see if you really like it or not, because if you can't get past that, you don't really earn the right to, to get up and start sliding with the pilots who are going to give you the smoother, faster trips. And so it's kind of that learning curve as you continue in the sport and you grind it out when you first come in. And then as you get better, if you improve and, and raise your status on the team, you, you start to slide with pilots who really have a great feeling for it and get you some smooth and fast trips. Yeah, so it sounds like you get pretty beat up. After a run, are, are you pretty banged and bruised? Yeah, r runs are generally, the best way I can describe it is like a, a minor 
car crash kind of feeling where maybe you didn't get hurt and you weren't, you know, nothing serious. And afterwards you have that adrenaline where you feel you're at the bottom and everything feels fine. But then three hours later, you're like, man, my neck's kind of sore, you know, and you're kind of like a fender bender kind of feeling, you know, we'll take two to three trips a day. They last no more than a minute, but they're extremely fatiguing, like neurologically, you know, because it's just, again, you're, you're getting that such heightened sense and that just that adrenaline state that you get when you take a trip, you get to the bottom and you feel invincible. And then a couple hours later, you're like, man, I need to take a, I need to take a nap. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we do that every day, pretty much all winter. And then in the summer we just train. So summer is sometimes some of the funnest parts of the sport too, is when you're not taking those trips and you can train hard so that in the winter you, you feel your best and you're almost bulletproofing yourself for those trips and they know what to expect. And the biggest things in our sport are sore necks and backs, you know, and uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, foggy heads, you know, you're hitting your head a little bit and just kind of protecting yourself. We have our, our protective equipment. I'll explain that is, is a motorcycle helmet essentially. And we have a burn vest that are also used in motorcycles generally, because if you were to crash, it's very, it's surprising to a lot of people, but because you're on ice, that friction, it almost gets to the point where it feels hot on your back and you can potentially get a, a pretty bad burn on your back. And so we wear Kevlar vests underneath our speed suits, just in the, in the chance that you crash, you know, that you uh, protect yourself from that, that what that, that's what the helmet's there for as well. Have you been in some nasty spills in practice, Josh? Have you felt the wrath of the motorcycle crash <laughs> on the ice? Yes. Yes, I definitely have. Uh, that's just kind of a part of our sport. You know, when you're trying to go fast, you know, you, uh, you push the limit and sometimes you roll over and that's what happens. You know, sometimes sleds just break, you know, you have, I've had a pilot get in and one of his D rings is just gone. Like it just got ripped off. So, you know, all he can do is turn left. So what do you, you know, what are you going to do? But and then, it's not NASCAR or, right, exactly. or you get in the sled and you know, just some tracks are difficult. You're looking for speed and, and your pilot pushes it just like you'd want it to. And you, and you roll over, you know, yeah. I've had a couple crashes and in a couple world cup races and, and, and training, uh, some crashes are worse than others, you know, so it's just one of those things. It's luck of the draw and you're, it's really out of your control. So at the same time, it's, it's funny that there's almost a sense of peace in it. You know, it's like I get in the sled and you're in this uncomfortable environment, but in a weird way, it's always been a little relaxing to me because it's one of those things where there's not a lot you can do and you can either kind of freak out and worry about that, or you can just kind of smile and be like, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm in for the ride, you know, and, and at this point it's going to hold on tight and get as low as I can. And, Hopefully we go fast and hopefully we stay on all four runners, you know. <laughs> you know, it is incredible because it sounds like you could also go to space when you talk about pulling the five G's. What is, how far in advance do you eat before you have an event? Because it sounds like things could get kind of hairy in that rattling trash can if you don't time it right. Yes, absolutely. And it's, I, I I ate a couple hours before, you know, it's something that, again, and as you get more trips, it's a little more comfortable. We have some people who their first year or so they have to take Dramamine when they slide, you know, that's just some people can get motion sickness. I, I've never really had that issue, but you know, that's just kind of some people you got to get used to it. And some people, I, I've known people who have never not gotten sick being in sleds, but they continued because they wanted to do this sport and there was a lot they liked about it. But that minute of sliding wasn't always the best for them, you know, but at the end of the day, and, and our five G's that we might potentially pull in some turns, it's very, the way to best describe it is it's, it's spiked pressure. You know, if you have like a, a fighter pilot, who's going to pull that many G's, they, they're getting sustained pressure. And that's some of the hardest part, right? Is they're, they're pulling that amount of G's, but it's, it's continuous for us. It's like, I'm in and out of a turn and 
you know, a couple seconds and I might get that 5G spike for three tenths of a second. So I'm going, going, I get one big pull down and then I kind of let up and you get into a next turn and then you get some pressure and then you're on the flat and you lose that pressure. So it's a little bit of a, it's, it's, it's a kind of a dance with gravity that our sleds are doing, you know, and it's one of those things that you're just navigating. The best way I've heard my pilot hunter describe it is you're, you're, you're navigating the sled down, but you're almost, you're almost give it, dealing with what nature's giving you in that, right? You know, what gravity is giving you and what those forces are giving you. Cause sometimes if you try to fight what the sled wants to do too much, the sled's going to win every time, you know, if it wants to go up and you're trying to get it to get off and you fight too much and you build more pressure, you're going to spit out the end of it, you know? So it's just kind of mm-hmm. that dance of having that feel of where the sled is and what the sled wants to do. And if that's what you want it to do, <laughs> getting it down as fast as you can. Very cool. So, so we've got a Lake Mary kid. If you're a central Floridian and you're going to watch the winter Olympics and you want to watch somebody who's local, who's doing the freaking thing, you've got Josh, the brake man on the U S Olympic bobsled team. And what was it like growing up at Lake Mary before I let you go? I mean, you're a central Florida guy, central Florida guys don't normally end up on the bobsled team. You're, you're like, I mean, there's the Jamaican bobsled team, which is a big story. And then there's the central Florida bobsled team, which is equally is just ridiculous. So what was it like? How many times have you watched cool running? (laughs) I've seen it once or twice. Uh, We get, we get down a lot. And that's one that I actually, it's really cool. The the Jamaican bobsled team actually just qualified for their first format since the Nagano Olympics in 1998, which is really cool and awesome for them. Those guys are constantly kind of grinding it out. And it's really cool to see that happen and to be able to go compete with them in Beijing. Uh, Growing up in Lake Mary, uh, to answer your question, Matt, was, I couldn't have asked for a better place to live, frankly. I tell people all the time, you know, that Central Florida and just Florida in general, I, I don't know if there's any other place I'd want to live in the world. I I still, I enjoy going out and seeing the winter weather. It's still kind of novel to me. So even though it's really cold, I enjoy it still. But I right now being in the sun in Chula, Chula Vista here is just kind of making me homesick in a weird way. Because I just want to be back in New Smyrna, kind of back in Orlando and just relaxing a little bit. And I can't wait to get back uh, after the season because I – I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times, you know, there's New Smyrna Beach is my favorite place on the planet. There's nowhere I'd rather live in this, in this world than the state of Florida, to be honest. That's what we like to hear, wow. isn't it, Gigi? Yeah, that is fantastic. Well, once you get the gold, I'm just going to claim it for you. Please come by and see us. Uh, we'd still love to talk to you again after it's all said and done with and we have a, a gold medal a, Olympian in our, you know, in our, we'd love to see you. It's just been fascinating talking to you and just hearing the mechanics of it all because I, I don't think a lot of people understand how that quite works. And people commenting or saying they're so proud of you, especially the people who are from Central Florida. We're proud of you too. So great job. Thank you guys so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. And again, it's just kind of been a, a surreal experience like being named my first Olympic team and getting to talk to you guys and just this whole process and all the support I've gotten from Central Florida. It's been, a, it's been overwhelming in the best way, I guess. <laughs> Hey, we'll all be watching. We'll all be cheering for you, Josh. Bring that gold medal home after the fact. We'll have a little mini parade here on Florida's Fourth Estate. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. We'll have another one for you next week. Good luck, Josh. Go crush it. Yes. Thank you, guys. (laughs) 